Yeah, welcome. So great to see uh, you this morning, whether you're a guest, your family member, or you're joining us on the podcast. As, as John alluded to, I'm, uh, I'm sort of playing hurt this morning. I'm not just holding this, this uh, drink here because I'm the cool hipster pastor. But if you can't tell, I've got kind of a thing going on with uh, my throat and voice. And by the way, let me just apologize to all of you who are guests because my voice normally doesn't sound this good. Actually... <laughs> It's normally higher uh, and more nasal and whiny, so today uh, it's, it's better, so don't get used to it. All right, quick announcement before we get going. On December 28th, in two weeks from today, December 20th, the Sunday after Christmas, we're actually going to be doing our best to give all of our volunteers a Sunday off, and so we'll be having a combined one service at 10.30 a.m. Place is going to be packed, of course, and uh, our chi- we'll have child care for uh, kids up through pre-K, and then, but then kindergarten and above will be joining us in the service for family worship. We'll also be having a special breakfast that morning in the lobby with breakfast tacos at 9.30. So come hang out with your post-holiday glow on you. Get here early. It's going to be great and a lot of fun, a really special morning. So that's in two weeks. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's begin and turn our attention to our scripture reading this morning and the passage on which the teaching is based. It's going to be from Psalm 130, the whole Psalm, verses 1 through 8. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, uh, that's God's word to us this morning, and of course, we're in the middle of a series called Messiah Songs, where we're looking at selected psalms and seeing how they both point us to a fuller meaning of the birth of Jesus at Christmas and how the psalms in specific shape our emotional lives. As we've been saying, by and large, our culture really does a poor job of equipping us and giving us resources for how to handle and process our emotions. More or less, we're given sort of two options culturally. On one hand, you've got sort of the the, the conservative religious cultural approach, which when it comes to our emotions, when it comes to how we feel, conservative religious culture says, stuff it, push it down, ignore it, just get over it, move past it. And keep it to yourself. On the other hand, there's our modern liberal cultural approach, which on the other hand, turns self-expression into a badge of honor and end in itself and says, whatever you're feeling can't be wrong. And what you're feeling ought always to be expressed loudly and for all to hear. Don't stuff how you feel. Shout how you feel. But the Bible's approach, we've been saying to the emotional life, is unique when it comes to how we're doing in life, how we're feeling, when it comes to how we feel about ourselves and our circumstances, the Bible doesn't say we should either stuff our emotions on one hand or shout them on the other. No, the Bible and the Psalms in particular tell us we should pray our emotions. We should pray our emotions. But it's not just the Bible's view of our emotional life that's unique. The Bible's view of the self is unique, of who we are as people, of individuals, as persons. And here, especially in the Psalms, we can answer the very modern question, the question our culture asks all the time, of who are we as people? What were we made for? What kind of people were we made to be? 
And here in Psalm 30, and really throughout the Psalms, a fascinating concept emerges. And what it shows us is this. That you and I today, we are more than a body, more than emotions, more than electrical impulses or physiological needs. The Bible tells us this. That you, the self, is really a soul. The Bible tells us, Psalm 130 shows us that we are people. Not just with bodies, not just with minds, but people with souls, with inner lives that have a specific kind of need that must be met in a specific kind of way. So I want to ask three questions of the text this morning of Psalm 130 that I hope will show us a great deal about how our inner lives function. Now, if that sounds a bit vague and sort of new agey, hang in there. All right, it's all going to make sense. Here we go. All right, three questions this morning. Number one, who are we? Number two, what do we need? And finally, how can we get what we need? Here we go. Number one, let's ask, who are we as people? Psalm 131 and 2 and 5 says this. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. So the psalmist here, he's saying this. He's saying, I wait. And then he turns around and says, my soul waits. Now, that's a Semitic way. That's a Hebrew poetic, Hebrew poetic way of saying the same thing twice. Or in other words, one thing in two ways. He's saying here, I and my soul are the same thing. I am a soul. Matter of fact, he's saying, I am my soul. Now, many of you may have been taught various things about the soul and its parts and how it works. But I'd like for you to do two things right now as we get going. First, just to sort of put whatever you've thought or been taught just on the back burner for a moment. And secondly, consider the single word the Bible uses to describe you right now as a person. All right, let's take a look at it. When God made you, when he made people, when he made the first humans, Genesis 2-7 says this, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living what? Living soul, yeah. It doesn't say that we became living bodies, living machines, even living spirits. No, it says we, men and women, became living souls. Genesis, therefore, gives us the picture that you and I don't just have souls, but that we are souls. You see the difference? There's a difference there. You, more than anything else about you, you're a unique soul. Your mind is a part of your soul. Your will is. But Genesis 2-7 here shows us that our bodies are also a part of what makes us us, our soul. And of course, you see this not just here in Genesis, but over in Psalm 103, when the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's what? Within me. Bless his holy name. Oh, what's he saying? That All that's a part of him is a part of his soul. In other words, the teaching is that you are a soul made by God and made to need God and made to need others, which leads us now to one obvious, inescapable, and unfortunate truth. Your soul has needs. Or to put another way, you are a needy person. You're a needy person today, and some of you are elbowing your spouse already. Say amen. Talking about the person I'm married to. 
John Ortberg, in his brilliant book on the so-called soul-keeping, makes this point using one of Carrie's and my favorite movies. It's one we actually watch almost at least one time a year, if not more. It's the movie What About Bob? with Bill Murray. And Bill Murray plays the title character, Bob Wiley. He's a neurotic, phobic, obsessive-compulsive personality with endless needs. And he goes to see Dr. Leo Marvin, played by Richard Dreyfuss. He's the exasperated, impatient therapist who's stuck caring for Bob. (coughs) And Bob, when he's asked about what his problem is, begins to list them. And he says this, he says, problems breathing, problems swallowing, numb lips, fingernail sensitivity, pelvic discomfort. What if my heart stops beating? What if I'm looking for a bathroom and I can't find one and my bladder explodes? Here's the point Dr. Orgberg makes. He says, your soul is a lot like Bob Wiley. It's always needy. It's always needy. There's always a, hey, I want this, or I'd like that, or I'm feeling this way. I mean, look at the Psalms, for example. Psalm 41, God, heal my soul. Again, you can only heal something that has a need to be healed. Psalm 42 says, my soul thirst it has a need for drink psalm 63 my soul will be satisfied with food it's got a need to to hunger psalm 84 my soul faints for god psalm 94 my soul is delighted and so forth and the psalms show us it's the nature of the soul to need and hear this it's important to acknowledge that things Go poorly, actually, for you in life when you don't acknowledge you're a needy person. Matter of fact, when Carrie and I <coughs> first got married, you know, I like to think of myself as sort of a low-maintenance guy, the classic American male. I turned to her and said, you know what? You know, I'm kind of low-maintenance, aren't I? And she just looked at me and stared and said, in your dreams, you know, you wish. You don't know what it's like to be me, do you? So... Some of you are saying, okay, all right, I've got some quirks in me, right, a wild hair or two, but needy, is it really important to acknowledge that I'm needy, my soul is needy? Well, let me just show you what it looks like when you don't acknowledge just how deeply needy you are as a soul. Dr. Henry Cloud is a Christian counselor and psychologist, and he describes a moment when he was in his residency when he and a number of other Christian doctors did their weekly check-in on their patients. And one by one, they began to talk about and, and update each other on their patients and the progress their patients were making. And then they came to a particular patient named Maddie. And this is what he had to say about Maddie. It was time to talk about Maddie, and I could tell everyone's expression changed. Fell would be a better word. Why? Maddie was a very difficult person to like. She developed a way about her that was off-putting, even when she was seemingly engaged with others. It seemed that something was always wrong with others, with the world around her, even with us who were trying to help her. Her husband was all too familiar with being the one who was wrong as well. We all turned to Graham, her psychologist, and I asked him what was happening with Maddie. That is when he made this statement. Well, it seems that Maddie still has no interest in having an interior life. I will never forget it. That statement said it all. Maddie had no interest in looking at her internal world, her attitudes, her hurts, her strengths, her patterns of thinking and behaving, or not trusting and not risking her spiritual life, and maybe most of all, her avoidance of embracing her real suffering and the courage to resolve it. As a result, we all share the same lack of hope for her, at least at this juncture. As long as she was not going to embrace her interior life, we all knew that her life was not going to change much at all. Whereas with the other people, our task was to help provide paths, skills, and resources for them to embrace and develop their interior and interpersonal world. With Maddie, our task was to get her to see that she has one. 
That was our task, to get Maddie to see, embrace, and develop her internal life, her real life. Let me ask you, do you realize that perhaps the most spiritually healthy thing you can do today is to acknowledge what Maddie couldn't? That you have a basic neediness of soul. Look, this psalmist does. What's he saying? Out of the what? Depths, I cry to you. He says, I'm sinking. I'm falling. I'm in a pit. I have a need. I'm needy. What does this tell us? Again, we are souls with needs. And this is what and why the psalmist John Ortberg and even Bob Wiley, what they show us runs countercultural to what our culture says about us as people. Conservative religious culture on one hand can view people as just machines, right? Who ought to do what's right and hang in there and keep a stiff upper lip and you know cling to what's good no matter what and the consequences. But liberal culture, on the other hand, says that the self is, is different. You know, it's something to be catered to, to be sort of pleasured and massaged and tickled and made to feel good every given moment. But the Psalms take neither approach. The Psalms say that the self is neither a machine on one hand nor something to be catered to on the other. <clears throat> but the self is something unique altogether. The self is a soul. The self is a soul with a specific kind of need that must be met in a specific kind of way. That's who we are, a soul with a need. But that brings us now to number two. And let's ask this now the second question what then do we need what do we need and verse five tells us as i make my transition now to take my jacket off and brother, i'm getting a little warm up here i'm working hard thank you brother don't put that on it a big big guy in a little coat right there all right some of you know that reference that was a freebie first service didn't get that all right Verse 5 tells us, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I put my hope. So, if the psalmist, in the first few verses, is describing the state of his soul before God, of sinking, falling down into a pit, then... This verse actually shows us the lifeline out, the rope God throws to us to pull us out of a dark place. And if you or someone you know is in a dark place, maybe in a pit in the depths this morning, let me encourage you to dig in right now with what I'm about to say and what you're about to hear. Some places that you may fall into in life are just going to be places that no person can pull you out of. No person can pull you out of. When you're in spiritual and emotional quicksand, you don't need a person to climb in with you. A person to climb in with you. You don't need, when you're in spiritual and emotional quicksand, someone climbing in and saying, hey, it sure stinks to be dying in here with you. You know, this is an awful place. No, when you're in a pit, you don't need someone climbing in as much as you need someone throwing you a rope, a lifeline, something to pull you out of where you are. So let's ask, what does God's lifeline look like? What is his rope thrown down into the place of the depths of the human condition? Well, the rope of Psalm 130 has two strands. We're going to look at them in turn. And the first strand, the first thing it shows us is this. The first strand means this, to wait on God. That's the first part of the rope God throws us, waiting on God. Now, you're all sitting there stunned. No one jumped up and said, man, that's just exciting. And I get to wait on God. Why? Because to you and me, waiting sounds boring, right? Like, a, like waiting in a train station for the train to come, or it sounds lazy, you know, like just sitting on a couch and watching TV while waiting for God to do something. Or maybe it sounds just 
massive, like you're on the highway letting car after car just cut in front of you, but not to the Hebrew. To the Hebrew, waiting on God wasn't boring, wasn't passive, wasn't lazy, but it's an active thing, an engaged thing. To wait in the Hebrew means literally to expect eagerly, to look for with anticipation, to lie in wait for. And therefore, the godly person, this psalm is telling us, is one who, when troubles come, when circumstances are bad, when challenges come, when your soul gets needy, when you're feeling dry, overrun by problems, the godly person doesn't just sit back on the one hand or jump ahead on the other. No, the godly person hurries up and waits. Hurries up and waits. Why? Let's ask, what happens when your soul waits on God? This is a concept throughout the Psalms. What happens when you press into him, eagerly expect him, lie in wait with anticipation of what he'll do and say? There's a great picture the Bible gives us. Like a tree, like a tree, your soul roots begin to go down into God. And when, when a tree puts down its roots... What is it looking for? What is it putting down its roots into? Oh, you know, into streams of water below, into water underneath the ground. In other words, the tree puts its roots down into something deeper than itself, something more lasting than itself. And when it does this, oh, it's beautiful. The tree now doesn't have to look to showers from above, to circumstances, to weather patterns, to sustain it. No, it's got a stream beneath it, see? And by doing so, in the end, has an unending source of nourishment. The tree doesn't look at outside, unpredictable, intermittent, fluctuating vicissitudes of life. No, it doesn't need showers above. It's got a stream below. And this picture, by the way, is consistent, of course, with the rest of the scriptures, and in particular in Psalm 46, 4. One of my favorite verses is a verse that's changed my life, and the psalmist says this. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Why do or why would streams make a city glad? Well, because a city with a stream running below it isn't at risk from a siege. You see, a foreign power, a foreign army could approach the city, could surround the city, threaten the city. But if you, if you were a citizen of a city with a stream running underneath it, a stream running below it, a river running through it as it were, how would you feel if you saw the enemy army approach? You'd feel what? Glad. Glad, happy, why? You could say, let them come. I can bear fruit at any time. I can grow crops at any time. I may be threatened on the outside, but fundamentally, I'm safe on the inside. And that's exactly what waiting on God does for the soul. Waiting on God causes us to know that while external things may affect you, they won't fundamentally threaten who you are. And therefore, this is what the Bible is telling us. There may be seasons in which you are in the depths, in the dark winter of your soul, maybe a bleak part and season of your marriage. But if, church, if you'll wait on God, if you'll do the hard work of putting your soul roots down into who God is, one day you will break through. One day you will rise up. One day you will bear fruit. Why? Because you haven't dried up. You don't need showers above. You've got a stream below. Why? Because you've waited. Because you've waited. In the end, can you see, your way out is actually the way down. The way down. Waiting on God. Now, that's what your soul needs, psalmist is saying, to wait on God. And that's the first strand. But it's simultaneously interwoven 
with another strand, the second strand of the rope of Psalm 30. What is it? Well, the other half of verse 5 tells us. It says, in his word, I put my hope. And here again, the image of a rope, of course, is helpful. Why? Because for a rope to be of any help to pull someone out, a rope has to be trusted in, doesn't it? When you are being pulled up out of the depths, the rope is your only hope. To get out, you've got to give up trying to get out your own way, don't you? You've got to give up thinking, man, I can make it out on my own. No, you give up your freedom and you cling to the hope of the rope. Why? Because the rope is above you. The rope is stronger than you, but most important of all, thank God, because the rope is not you. It's not you. And when it comes to tapping the power of the Word of God in your life, you have to receive it in the same way, as authoritative, above you, as transcendent. For God's Word, in other words, to have an effect on your soul, the effect Psalm 130 promises us, for you to be lifted up out of the depths, changed. Let me just give you the single way it must be initially received for it to have an effect on your life. I'll give it to you like this. God's word must be received as authoritative for all times and all places. God's word must be received as authoritative for all times and all places. Praise the Lord. I think I got half an amen there. That's okay. You know, one of the running jokes in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movies, or Caribbean, or you know, Caribbean, Caribbean, whatever, was about the Pirate's Code, the Pirate's Code, and about how pirates ought to honor the Pirate's Code and follow the Pirate's Code. But, of course, throughout the movie, they were always breaking the Pirate's Code. And whenever someone would ask, why are you breaking the Pirate's Code, they would always reply, well, we like to think of it as more as guidelines. <laughs> it's guidelines. But that's not how we approach the Word of God. It's authoritative. The Psalms all throughout makes this case. And if there's one thing, you know this, our culture doesn't like today, it's that statement right there. We wrestle with the idea that anything should be binding on us or anyone except when we want it to be binding on someone else. Like we want them to pay their bill on time or pay their account on time or show up on time, right? So, of course, we especially don't like the idea of the Bible being authoritative in our lives. But let me give you two ways here briefly in which receiving God's word as authoritative will actually bring you the hope Psalm 130 says you can have. Two ways. First, it'll bring you cultural hope. And secondly, spiritual hope. Cultural hope and spiritual hope. First, let me just show you why receiving God's word as authoritative as binding in your inner life, in your soul, is actually the most culturally hopeful thing you can do. You say, what does that mean? Well, far from being culturally limiting, submission to the Word of God, the Bible, is actually culturally liberating. If you were fortunate enough to meet your parents or your grandparents at any level, you know that a good bit of the things they said to you are, were actually, now looking back, you know, humiliating and embarrassing. They're always at holidays saying stuff. You're like, Gramps, you know, Grammy, you can't say that kind of thing anymore. Uh, if, you've ever read, if you've ever read newspaper editorials, you know, from 70 to 100 years ago, you read them and you can hardly believe their point of view and how they're written. And if you're a writer for the Austin American Statesman today, you look back 80 years in your own news newspaper in the city. You'd be embarrassed by the things that were written. Why? Were these people bad? Well, some of them were, but not all of them were. No, they were just people of their time. 
whether they were right or wrong or good or bad, the point is they were surrounded by people from their time. They couldn't get distance, right? And they didn't allow the Bible to critique their social institutions, the things in their culture that were off and biblically not supported. So let me ask you, how aware are you that probably at least 20, maybe 50% of the things you believe today will absolutely embarrass your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You know, you don't believe that. That's why you didn't say yes. Our culture didn't be- doesn't believe that. We believe that this same process that's been going on from the beginning of human history has stopped with us. And that we have carved out the ultimate cultural moment and the absolute right way to view sex, money, faith, church, all that... Are you aware? How aware are you that you are just like, I'm just like every other person who's ever lived in that regard? And if that is the case, which it is, how are you ever going to be able to critique your culture and your thoughts and the social institutions around us? How can we be liberated from things that are crushing us culturally that you saw others in the past couldn't get free from? Let me just suggest... What better way to do that than to take something that critiques every culture equally and that millions of people over thousands of years have said it has liberated them and that on whose very pages we see people's lives being liberated from the culture around them. See, receiving God's word is culturally hopeful. It helps you be free from all the ways in which we're pressured to give in or do this or believe that. And by the way, I would bet money that any part of the Bible that you wrestle with today, or that even your friend wrestles with, is not just because you're really wrestling with it, but it's because our culture is pressuring them to wrestle with it. Listen, we don't like the boundaries the Bible, for example, puts on our sex lives today. We just don't. But a billion people on the other side of the world love it. Love it. Why? Just because they live somewhere else. Now, we love the parts of the Bible that talk about love and forgiveness, forgiving our enemies, turning the other cheek. Those verses are flaunted everywhere. But that same billion people on the other side of the world reject the Bible because it tells them to love, forgive their enemies, and turn the other cheek. Listen, in 100 years, how do you know what our culture believes about sex won't change? Hmm? Won't have changed our view. Wouldn't it be foolish? to throw away the entirety of God's word based on solely a Western American 21st century objection. But secondly, receiving God's word as authoritative is also the most spiritually hopeful thing you can do. You know, one of the largest, excuse me, objections in our culture to the idea of the Bible is authoritative and binding is that they say to receive the Bible as authoritative in our lives is actually spiritually deadening. It's limiting. Our culture believes that when we receive it as just a suggestion, as when we take the parts that we like and we screen out the parts that we don't like, that's actually freeing and good. But I'd like to argue the opposite. Let me show you what I mean. Not too long ago in the cultural critique magazine, Mother Jones, there was an editorial in it, and maybe you're familiar with the magazine, but the editorial said this, and I think this really encapsulates the thought. It said, quote, Americans read the Bible as a manifesto of a God who has a lot of laws and an inclination to punish those who don't follow him. But we must latch on instead to the idea of the Bible that is not rules and proof texts. We must start to read the Bible as a story in a conversation. This radical notion that the Bible is not always true may be frightening to religious people. But if you approach the text as, quote-unquote, truth, you can't possibly go to a place of intimacy with God. Now, 
I couldn't disagree more strongly, and I'll go so far as to say that unless your soul receives the Word of God as authoritative, you'll never have the kind of spiritual intimacy you really need and long for. Now, let me give you an example, and I apologize for this in advance. Growing up, my dad used to watch the old Star Trek episodes. You know, I don't think of uh, maybe Picard and so forth, but of Kirk and Spock. And uh, There was one particularly silly and ridiculous episode that actually had a fascinating premise. The episode is called I Mud, and you can, of course, Google it or Wikipedia it, and Wikipedia is now a verb, apparently. But the episode is about a man named Harry Mud who lived on a planet where the only beings were himself and the beautiful women robots he had made to serve him as he sat day and night on his throne. It's high concept science fiction, as you can see. All right. And none of these beautiful women robots ever contradicted him. They only say, yes, Lord Mud, yes, dear, yes, Lord Mud, what do you want us to do, Lord Mud? And he even has these beautiful women robots make a robot copy of his nagging wife to remind him why he'd left her in the first place. And he keeps her in a closet next to his throne. He pushes a button, out she comes, and she begins to nag him, saying, Harry, you know, Harcourt Fenton Mud, where have you been? Have you been out all night? There's alcohol in your breath. I can smell it. Where have you been? And he, when he can't take it anymore and her nagging no longer he pushes a button she goes back in the closet she powers down going you 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 the door closes and he's free once more see it's paradise apparently for him apparently right (sighs) except it wasn't because when Kirk and Spock show up, he's actually miserable. He can't take it any longer. He tries to kidnap them and force them to take him off the planet. Why? Because he doesn't have a single, real, personal relationship. He's done away with anything or anyone that could ever contradict anything he'd ever said. See, in, in seeking to escape any authority, any offense in his life, he had done away with the thing his soul needed most. A real relationship. It actually dehumanized him. It made him less of a person when he didn't allow himself to be contradicted. And the trouble with personal relationships is something you've all seen coming. No relationship, no real relationship is ever personal until you give up your independence. Until you give up your right to do exactly what you want and go wherever you want to. Until you give up your right to not be told what to do. See, a real relationship, one that's intimate, is only one where the other party can contradict you. And therefore, if you won't accept the Bible as the absolute authoritative word of God that can speak into and correct your thinking and your life, you're no different than Harry Mudd. You just made up a robot God who powers down when you push the button. You know, have you been obeying the Ten Commandments? Where have you been? Have you been reading your Bible, 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 Bible? and in the end you'll be what he was all alone your soul actually needs a personal relationship with a God whose word is supreme why? why would you call out to a God who promises love and rescue in his word if you've said that word isn't for you right? if his law isn't for you how can his love be for you either? the psalmist says oh in his word I put my hope Church, it can only liberate, only pull you out if it's true, if it's trustworthy. Otherwise, 
It's a false hope. You say, okay, all right, I'd like for this to be true. I'd like. I see my soul needs to trust God's word, but man, that's a lot. How can I get this? How can I trust this? All right, let's ask. Finally, number three, how can we get what we need? How can we? Well, the answer lies in the tension in the psalm between verses 6 and then 7. And there's a tension here. Verse 6 says, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Then, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, all along, the psalmist has been speaking in first person. He's been saying, I cry out. I'm in the depths. My soul will wait. But out of nowhere, he takes this abrupt 180 and turns not to addressing himself but to addressing the whole nation. He says, oh Israel, one day God himself will redeem you. One day God himself will answer every heart's cry for rescue. One day God won't forgive and pardon because of a woolly little animal on the table. No, someday God himself is going to come and buy you all back. Somehow God is going to redeem us from our fears and evils and addictions. You ask, well, how can this be possible? Oh, there's a little pointer there in verse 7. I don't know if you caught it. The writer says, Oh, Israel, put your hope in God, in the Lord. But isn't that funny? Just two verses earlier, he said, as we've seen, he was putting his hope in the Word, in God's Word. He was saying that God's Word was his rescuer, his Savior, his lifeline, his hope, his way out. Just before this, he says, The greatest thing I could ever have is God's Word. But then here he says, Now, put your hope in God himself. Why the sudden switch? What's he doing? Oh, you see what he's doing here? He's saying that God's word and God himself are the same thing, are the same thing. You ask, well, how can this be? Is God's word our hope, our savior, our rescuer, or is God himself? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. What does this mean? The answer is that the psalmist is through the Holy Spirit, intuiting something that we, on this side of history, can see much more clearly. And it's what the writer John wrote about in the first chapter of his account of the life of Jesus. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, God's Word can be our Savior, our Deliverer, because Jesus is God's Word. He's the Word of God with flesh on why? Why do, why do we? Why would anyone use words, a word to, to communicate? Why? We use words, language to express ourselves. And God, all his word is true. While all his word made text is true for God to express the depths of himself, it wasn't enough for his word only to become text. No, God, to fully express himself, had his word become flesh. And here's why. Because in a personal relationship, to really get intimacy, you know this, we must allow ourselves to have our will crossed. And when we do that, when we come to God and we see his word and it contradicts us and it adjusts us and it corrects us in any area, when we do that, oh, we have intimacy. But you may be saying, and rightfully so, asking, what about God, huh? When did he lose his independence? When did he do that for me? And the answer is, look at the word made flesh. Look at the word made flesh. When Jesus was in the garden, what did he cry out? He said, oh, not my will, but yours be done, oh God. When he was on the cross, do you think he lost his freedom? Hmm? 
is independence. Listen, you can't lose your freedom any more than being nailed to a tree. He lost it all, allowed himself to be crucified to the point of death to buy us back and redeem the world from all their sins. He himself, God himself, the word made flesh, has redeemed us from all our sins. He cried out from the depths. When our record came on him, he waited for deliverance, cried out for the hope, for the rescue, for the rope, and got nothing. Why? So that when we look at the cross, when we look at the word made text, we know we can trust God in his heart for us. He will never ask you, church, never ask you to go to a place in your heart he hasn't already gone, gone to in his heart for you. He'll never do it. And when you see that, that the word made text became the word made flesh for you, why wouldn't you want to put your hope, faith, trust in that word? Why wouldn't you want to obey that word? See, if God's word was only made text, that'd be legalism, like every other faith system, rules you could never follow. Oh, but Christianity says, Christmas says that the word became a man and fulfilled it all and obeyed it in your place. You and I are saved, can be saved, hear this, by the obedience of Jesus to God's word. And now you, your soul, oh, your innermost being can trust the word made text because the word was made flesh and Jesus followed it to the letter for you. Your soul... Your soul needs this, church. It needs the word, this God. More, let me tell you, you need this more than watchmen wait for the morning. Why do watchmen wait for the morning? Why do they want morning to come? Oh, so they can rest. So they can rest, right? And your soul needs rest as well. Soul needs rest as well. How? Not through your circumstances changing today, but by waiting, waiting upon Jesus, God's word. In conclusion, let's ask, who are we? Oh, souls with needs. What do our souls need the most? To wait upon God and his word. How? How can we trust it? Because for us, church, the word made text became the word made flesh. Let's respond and close in prayer as we celebrate that and respond now, this morning, in Jesus' name. Lord, we come to you this morning as a grateful people. Lord, seeing the psalmist here in this place crying out to you from the depths. And Lord, I know there's many of us that are crying out, even in a holiday season with so much festivity going on. Lord, many of us can be in that place as well, crying out to you. And Lord, we need this. More than watch when wait for the morning. Lord, more than that, we choose now to wait upon you. In your word, we put our hope. And if that's you this morning, if you're saying, you know what, the psalmist describes me in my condition. Man, I've got a need. I'm in the depths. I'm waiting on God. Would you just raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Lord, there's so many of us, yeah, with needs, feel like we're in a pit out of the depths, Lord, we cry. Lord, I'm praying now for, honestly, for the courage to wait on you. For courage. It takes courage. Not just to sit back. Not just to jump ahead, but first to wait. In your word, let these, let all of us put our hope, our trust, our faith. Lord, we can trust you because of what you've done for us. We celebrate that now in Jesus' name. Thank you for coming down for us, being made flesh. In Jesus' name.